Blog Talk Radio.
Greetings, this is Abai. Welcome back uh, to another edition of the Pan-African Journal. The Pan-African Journal, the audio news magazine, is brought to you here on a weekly basis. I am your host, uh, Abayomi Azikwe. Today is Sunday, May 30th, uh, 2022. We're broadcasting live uh, from our studios in uh, downtown Detroit. I want to thank all of our listeners for tuning in once again to yet another edition of the Pan-African Journal, this special edition of our program. Today's uh, episode represents uh, the final installment uh, to the uh, African Liberation Weekend uh, programming. This is the final episode of our three-part series for African Liberation Weekend. We're commemorating the 59th anniversary of the formation of the Organization of African Unity, the predecessor of today's African Union. The program features our PANW report uh, with dispatches on the impact of Western sanctions against Russia on the international food chain supply. The South Sudan government has criticized the administration in Ghana for imposing an arms embargo on the country. There was an announcement by the military regime in the Republic of Sudan that the state of emergency has been lifted. And a former presidential candidate in Egypt has been sentenced to 15 years in detention. In the second and third hours, we look at the armed phase of the African Revolution and the role of Cuba in the whole African liberation process. So stay tuned, and uh, we'll be back uh, with more of the Pan-African Journal. Uh, We're going to take a musical interlude with the TPOK Jazz Orchestra, Featuring vocalists Banyel and Nana. Let's listen in. Nous 
Latina Salaboni, lo corana lingio, sala no ki no kinga y nayo, tokutanae. Salanga y plezi, tokutana to solola, na canisi o corregrete moquete o flora.
which have halted exports uh, through the Black Sea since Moscow waged war on its neighbors on February 24th. The timing could not be worse. The U.N. has warned that an estimated 13 million people were facing severe hunger in the Horn of Africa region as a result of a persistent drought. Abdi Rahman has been trying to make do uh, by substituting sorghum, another more readily available grain, in her flatbread. Inflation, though, means the price of the cooking oil she still needs to prepare it has skyrocketed, too. A jar that once cost $16 is now selling for $45 in the markets of Mogadishu. The cost of living is high nowadays, making it difficult for families even to afford flour and oil, she noted. Haji Abdi Diblawe, a businessman who imports wheat flour into Somalia, fears the situation will only worsen. There's also a looming shortage of shipping containers to bring food supplies in from elsewhere at the moment. Somalians have no place to grow wheat, and we are not even familiar with how to grow it. He says, our main concern now is what will the future hold for us when we currently run out of supplies. Another 18 million people are facing severe hunger in the Sahel, the part of the African continent just below the Sahara Desert, where farmers are enduring uh, their worst agricultural production in more than a decade. The UN World Food Program says food shortages could worsen when the, learn, when the lean season arrives uh, in late summer. Acute hunger is soaring. The unprecedented levels and the global situation just keeps on getting worse. Conflict, the climate crisis, COVID-19, and surging food and fuel costs have created a perfect storm. And now uh, we've got the war in Ukraine piling catastrophe on top of catastrophe. The World Food Program Executive Director David Beasley warned earlier this month. Even the cost of therapeutic food for malnourished children could rise 16%. Over the next six months because of the war in Ukraine and disruptions related to uh, the pandemic. African countries uh, imported 44% of their wheat from Russia and Ukraine between 2018 and 2020, according to United Nations figures. The African Development Bank is already reporting a 45% increase in wheat prices on the continent, making everything from couscous in Mauritania the fried donuts sold in Congo more expensive for customers. Africa has no control over production or logistics chains and is totally at the mercy of the situation, said Senegalese President Macky Sall, the African Union chairperson who has said he will travel to Russia and Ukraine to discuss price woes. Russian President Vladimir Putin pressed the West last week to lift sanctions against Moscow over the war in Ukraine seeking to shift the blame from Russia to uh, the North Atlantic Treaty Organization countries led by the United States for a growing world food crisis that has been worsened by Ukraine's inability to ship millions of tons of grain and other agricultural products while under attack. Putin told Italian Prime Minister Mario Draghi that Moscow is ready to make a significant contribution to overcoming the food crisis through the export of grain and fertilizer on the condition that politically motivated restrictions imposed by the West are lifted. And that's according to the Kremlin. Western officials have dismissed the Russian claims. The U.S. Secretary of State, Anthony Blinken, 
has noted that food, fertilizer, and seeds are exempt from the sanctions imposed by the United States and many others on Russia. Meanwhile, Ukraine has accused Russia of looting both grain and farm equipment from territories held by its forces. A Russian official in southern Ukraine has confirmed that grain from most of last year's harvest there is being sent to buyers in Russia, according to a report on Monday uh, by the Russian TASS state news agency. That grain, however, isn't making its way to Africa. In Cameroon, Baker Sylvester Eko uh, says he's seen his daily clientele drop from 300 customers a day to only 100 since bread prices jumped 40% because of the lack of wheat imports. And you're listening to uh, the Pan-African Journal, worldwide uh, radio broadcast. In uh, the Republic of Sudan, uh, military leader Abdel Fattah al-Bahan said yesterday uh, that uh, he was issuing a decree lifting the state of emergency seven months after its imposition in October of 2021. On October 25th, al-Bahan dissolved the civilian transitional government and the Empowered Removal Committee suspending a series of political and economic reforms and preparations for nationwide elections. The coup opened the door for political instability following the detention of the Forces for Freedom and Change leaders and the killing of civilian protesters. Also, it triggered the suspension of international support and the reemergence of the Islamists who voiced their support for the junta. Upon a recommendation by the Security and Defense Council, the Sovereign Council issued a statement announcing the lift of the state of emergency in order to create a conducive environment for a fruitful and meaningful dialogue that achieves stability during the transitional period, the chairman of the Transitional Sovereign Council, Lieutenant General Fatah Al-Burhan, today uh, issued a decree lifting the state of emergency throughout the country. A short statement was released last night. Also, the security service released some 125 political detainees two hours after months of arbitrary detention under the state of emergency. Rehab Mubarak, a member of the Emergency Lawyers Group, told the Sudan Tribune that, quote, the security forces and the police released 125 protest leaders, unquote. They were held in several prisons and detention facilities across Sudan, across the country. They were released uh, Sunday night. Mubarak added that a detainee remains held an Al-Huda prison in the capital of Khartoum as he faces criminal charges. The trilateral mechanism facilitating a dialogue aiming to restore the civilian-led transition several times stressed the need to create a suitable atmosphere and call for the release of political detainees, a lift of the state of emergency, and the end of the violence against the protesters. Also, Sudan's former ruling coalition, Forces for Freedom and Change, made a similar request. And last April, Al-Bahan stated that he had directed the component authorities to keep some provisions related to the economic and security situation after the lift of the state of emergency. The Security and Defense Council, in a statement, said the lift of the state of emergency should not contradict laws related to security issues or criminal law. The resistance committees, according to their weekly timetable, planned several local protests in the three cities of the capital before a unified march to the presidential palace on June the 2nd. And in South Sudan, the UN Security Council on Thursday last week adopted a resolution to renew for a year 
until May 31st of 2023, an arms embargo against South Sudan. Security Council Resolution 2633 was adopted by a vote of 10 in favor of Albania, Brazil, France, Ghana, Ireland, Mexico, Norway, United Arab Emirates, United Kingdom, the United States, to none against, with five abstentions, which were China, Gabon, India, Kenya, and the Russian Federation. South Sudan's government, however, applauded China, India, Russia, Gabon, and Kenya for not voting for the sanctions on Juba. The five countries abstained from the vote. The resolution to extend the ban through May 2023, drafted by the United States, was passed with 10 out of 15 votes. The vote by Ghana in favor of U.S. draft resolution angered Juba, that our brotherly country, whom we look to as an anchor of Pan-Africanism, should vote against the African Union position, disappoints us. We nonetheless have confidence that the Ghanaian government will revisit its position. That was according to the South Sudan Foreign Affairs Ministry, and they said this in a statement, that some countries would dismiss the African Union's stance on this matter shows an old hubris with no value for a world shaken by wars, including in Africa and Europe, when the African Union rejected the U.S.-sponsored sanctions and arms embargo on South Sudan, Ghana was its chair, it added. South Sudan Information Minister Michael McHughie uh, said the Ministry of Foreign Affairs had written a letter to the United Nations Security Council protesting the decision. The government of South Sudan is dissatisfied and disappointed with the resolution of the Security Council because this resolution, in the opinion of the government, doesn't actually serve the interests of the people of South Sudan and doesn't in any way serve that the proper implementation of the agreement, he told the state-owned South Sudan television on Friday. And finally, in Egypt, an emergency court uh, has sent us a 2012 presidential candidate, Abdel Mourim Abou Fatou, to 15 years in prison for, quote, false information, unquote, and, quote, undermining state security, unquote. In a sentence announced on Sunday, there are 24 other Islamist opponents, a judicial source said, among them Mahmoud Azat, former Supreme Guide of the now-banned Muslim Brotherhood, already sentenced to life imprisonment for espionage, and the end, two of Mr. Abu Fatou's Mazir Fakwia Party, Mohammed El Qasas. Mr. Abu Fatou was arrested on his return from London where he had granted interviews criticizing the government and calling for a boycott of the presidential elections that returned Abdul Fattah al-Sisi to office. In 2012, however, he was a candidate in the election won by the Muslim Brotherhood uh, uh, leader, Mohammed Morsi, who was overthrown by Mr. al-Sisi a year later, who was then head of the army. Mr. Abu Fatou placed on the terrorist list and whose assets have been sequestered for four years was charged with membership of an illegal organization before an anti-terrorism court. His lawyer, Khalid Ali, a leading figure on the left, and also a former presidential candidate, had decided to use the weapons of power of Mr. al-Sisi to defend him. In April, he submitted four episodes of a successful military soap opera featuring videos of Mr. Abu Fatou filmed 
without his knowledge by the intelligence services and criticizing the Muslim Brotherhood to the judges as exculpatory evidence. Amnesty International, which recently said Egypt held a world record for death sentences with more than 350 in 2021, denounced the verdict, calling it a, quote, totally unfair political trial, unquote, saying the conflicts had been subjected to torture and ill treatment in detention and calling on Mr. Sisi to release them. Mr. Abu Fatou, age 70, has been deprived of medical care for years, according to the Human Rights Non-Governmental Organization. And uh, with that, uh, we're going to conclude uh, the Pan-African Newswire segment of the Pan-African Journal. In concluding this segment, we want to remind our listeners that the Pan-African Newswire is an international electronic press service. It is designed to foster intelligent discussions on the affairs of African people throughout the continent and the world. The press agency was founded in January of 1998, and since then, it has published thousands upon thousands of articles and dispatches in numerous newspapers, magazines, journals, research reports, and on blogs and websites throughout the world. The Pan-African Newswire represents the only daily international news source on Pan-African and global affairs. If you'd like to log on to the Pan-African Newswire so you can stay abreast of some of the most pressing and burning issues of the day, just go to our website at um, panafricannews.blogspot.com. That's panafricannews.blogspot.com. And if you'd like to have access to today's Pan-African Journal, special worldwide radio broadcast uh, for Sunday, May 30th, 2022, just go to our website at the Pan-African Radio Network. That's at blogtalkradio.com forward slash Pan-African Journal. That's blogtalkradio.com forward slash Pan-African Journal. Uh, These programs can be shared with other potential listeners via email, blogs, and websites and social media networks such as Facebook and Twitter. We'll take a musical break. We'll be back with more of the Pan-African Journal for this week.
welcome back. And uh, that was uh, I Am the Black Gold of the Sun uh, from the new uh, Rotary Connection album, uh, their last album, uh, the Rotary Connection from 1971. And uh, right now we want to move into our African Liberation uh, Weekend programming. This is the concluding three-part uh, segment uh, to African Liberation Week- Weekend for uh, 2022. Uh, we're going to look at uh, the role of Cuba, the Cuban Revolution, and the overall African Revolution uh, against uh, colonialism and settler colonialism and imperialism. Uh, let's listen in. July 1991 in Havana. It is Nelson Mandela's first trip outside Africa since his release from 27 years of prison. But why would the legend of struggle against oppression decide that the first person he wants to thank for helping to end apartheid is Fidel Castro, the very man who is regarded in the West as an oppressor of his own people? Fidel Castro and 500,000 Cubans took part in the African wars which ultimately ended colonialism. This little-known story began in 1960, only a year after Cuban revolutionaries triumphed. Their struggle had captured people's imagination, and the young feisty leaders, Fidel Castro and Che Guevara, emerged from three years of guerrilla war as heroes. The wave of independence in Africa was spreading like wildfire. That year alone, 17 African countries gained independence, and 30 others started their revolutionary armed struggle. African revolutionaries were looking to the Cubans as a model for their own independence. Cuba was living proof that David could beat Goliath. Al doloroso caso del Congo, único en la historia del mundo moderno, que muestra cómo se puede burlar con la más absoluta impunidad, con el cinismo más insolente, el derecho de los pueblos. Che Guevara was revolted, and his speech gave a clear signal that Cuba intended to act. The case of Patrice Lumumba in the Congo was symbolic of how African independence would be crushed by Cold War strategic interests. It was Lumumba's assassination that sparked a new era for many African revolutionaries, and with it started the epic of Cuba and Africa. The Congo, one of the largest and richest countries on the continent. The Belgian colony was demanding immediate independence. Patrice Lumumba, the young articulate clerk, led the movement that negotiated a peaceful solution to end Belgian rule. On June 30, 1960, King Baudouin arrived in Leopoldville 
the capital named after his great uncle, to hand over power. Le roi Baudouin était dans une voiture découverte. Il saluait la foule, etc. Un Congolais s'est précipité sur la voiture. J'ai vu les, les gardes du roi dégainer. Et tout le monde avait peur, se disait il va tuer le roi. Non, il a simplement sorti l'épée du roi de sa gaine. Et il s'est mis à danser avec cette épée. C'est très symbolique ça. C'est comme s'il lui a arraché le pouvoir. On Independence Day, all the dignitaries assembled in Parliament. King Baudouin was to announce the transfer of power to the new government. Patrice Lumumba had just been elected Prime Minister. But the euphoria of independence did not last long. That same day, Lumumba lit a fire that spread through the entire continent. L'indépendance du Congo constitue l'aboutissement de l'œuvre conçue par le génie du roi Léopold II. Le discours du roi Baudouin, qui nous rappelait comment la Belgique nous a sortis de, de l'esclavage, comment ils ont lutté pour nous sortir des maladies du sommeil, et patati patata, ça a été un choc. Nous ne nous attendions pas à ce rappel malheureux, parce que nous estimions que le roi Baudouin n'avait plus de leçons à nous faire hein, ce jour-là. À ce moment-là, le monde se lève, qui n'était pas programmé comme devant parler à ce moment-là. Il se lève et il parle. Il fait un discours très militant. Combattant de l'indépendance, aujourd'hui victorieux, je vous salue au nom du gouvernement congolais. Nous avons connu les ironies, les insultes, les coups que nous devions subir au matin, midi et soir, parce que nous étions des nerfs. Rappelez-vous comment on traitait le blanc par rapport au noir. Rappelez-vous dans les écoles quelle place nous occupions. Rappelez-vous tout l'apartheid. Alors évidemment, réaction immédiate de toute la délégation belge. D'abord, beaucoup d'agitation pendant que le monde parle. Qui oubliera en fait les fusillades ou périr tant de nos frères, ceux qui ne voulaient plus se soumettre au régime d'injustice, d'oppression et d'exploitation. C'était mal reçu par les Belges, mais nous, nous avons tout à fait répondu à nos, à nos aspirations. Et au moment du dîner, on demande à Lubumba de présenter des excuses. Il ne s'en fait pas. Il présente les excuses en disant « Je pensais que je devais dire à cet homme des choses, je les ai dites, donc il s'est blessé, je m'en excuse et je demande qu'on tourne la page que nous puissions voir les choses autrement. » Mais il était trop tard. La majesté était lésée. Et la majesté les a décidés le soir même de se venger et tout a commencé. Lumumba wanted to govern independently, but there were only 30 university graduates in the Congo. So it was agreed that for the next five years, Belgium would continue to run the important departments of the new state, including the army. 
the soldiers felt excluded from the newly acquired freedom. Within days, they started a mutiny which led to the breakdown of the entire country. The troops were roaming the streets, all armed, and uh, it was it was quite a racial problem. The mutineers were there, and they had uh, matiti, that's you know, bushes on their helmet, which was a sign that they were prepared for action, for combat. I can remember one yelling, "Venez, venez, sal flamand!" We were all dirty Flemish. It, uh, that was some some uh, expression that that meant you were really bad and uh, we're going to kill you. More and more stories circulated about killing, rape, pillage, etc. It was, if you will, the Iraq of today. Le 10 juillet, le 10 juillet, vous tenez bien la date, les militaires belges ont occupé l'aéroport de Njili, ici. Ils ont organisé l'agression du Congo en disant, puisque les militaires congolais mutinés se sont attaqués aux femmes, aux enfants et aux officiers, la Belgique n'avait plus aucun autre moyen de protéger ses ressortissants que de faire venir des troupes belges le 10 juillet. Dix jours après. Le Momba immédiatement tourne to the US for support. The United States had never been a colonizing power, and their democratic principles seemed to guarantee support for people fighting for independence. Fidel Castro himself had chosen the U.S. as his first stop for support when his revolution triumphed a year earlier. But like Castro, Lumumba's attitude did not go down well with the Americans. I was in the lobby of the embassy where this little the Congolese clerk came in and he said he wanted 24 visas. He didn't know what a visa was. I said, well, do you have passports to put the visas in? Ah, no, patron, he didn't. So I explained to him what a visa was. And I said, why do you need 24? Well, he said, uh, Lumumba is going to the States to see President Eisenhower. I said, oh, that's interesting told him ambassador he said i'm not aware of it so he checked and eisenhower said well if he comes i'll, I'll be here the movement couldn't have made a worse impression on the Secretary of State and his deputy and other people with whom he met there. He threatened, he asked for things, uh, including to have a woman sent around to his room. The visit was not a success, and it was clear that Washington would not come to his rescue. Just as Lumumba was leaving Washington, Cuba announced the nationalization of U.S. companies and a trade embargo was immediately imposed on the island. Lumumba, like Castro, soon discovered that the Soviet Union was more than happy to help where the U.S. would not. At this moment, Lumumba commits probably the second error. He takes the decision, they make 
un télégramme adressé euh, à Khrouchev pour lui demander l'envoi des troupes de l'Union soviétique pour venir chasser les Belges. Ce télégramme, avant même qu'il ne sorte, est volé au secrétaire de Lumumba par son ancien directeur de cabinet qui s'appelait Candolo Damien. Larry Devlin s'accapare du télégramme, les transmet au gouvernement américain. We, we became aware of it almost immediately. And it came from uh, Congolese sources. Uh, that immediately alerted the Americans. I became wide-eyed at that. I said, ah, we have a problem here. He tried to play off the West against the East. It's an old game, but it was relatively new at that time in Africa. Mais Larry Devlin ne l'a pas pris comme ça. Il a pris pour dire, voilà, la preuve est là que le monde communiste par conséquent. Outre le fait qu'il a insulté le roi des Belges, il est communiste, donc il faut le chasser du pouvoir. The Congo crisis was becoming more than just a local conflict in faraway Africa. The superpowers were taking a particular interest, especially Moscow, that had recently set up a bureau for aiding anti-colonial liberation movements. The Soviet Union was eager to help, or at least agreed to help, the legally elected Congolese government. It was in the last days of July when a squadron of our Illusion 14 transport planes about 10 left for Leopoldville. By the way, they landed in Athens at the airport, which was partly NATO base. It became a big noise. The whole noise about the Cold War started when we landed there. It was the first time that there'd ever been Soviets in that part of Africa, at least, certainly not the Congo, and very few in the rest of Africa, because the colonial powers were not desirous of having the Soviets there. Третий мир в этой войне был полем, так сказать, для охоты. Перевели вам? Полем для охоты. Почему? В Европе границы были забетонированы. Перейти границу означало начать атомную войну, которую никто не хотел. А третий мир, он был как будто без хозяина. Там была, возможно, свободная охота. Там можно было приобретать влияние. We believed, and I think it's true, that it was attempt to hold Congo as a base, especially as a base of minerals for the United States, for the West. You should not forget that the first atomic bomb was done of those uranium found in Congo. There are only two countries in the world that supplied cobalt at that time, Soviet Union and the Congo. And cobalt is extremely important for jet engines and all sorts of high technology. And we could not get it from the Soviet Union because it was a security commodity. So Congo was our only source. I suspect that the people in Washington began wondering where are we going to get our cobalt from if, if uh, the Soviets managed to control that. The United States deplores the unilateral action of the Soviet Union in supplying aircraft and other equipment for military purposes to the Congo. The Soviet action 
which seems to be motivated entirely by the Soviet Union's political designs in Africa. I must repeat that the United States takes a most serious view of this action by the Soviet Union. Eisenhower fumed about aggressive Soviet support for his opponents. Soviet military aid for Lumumba arrived in the Congo only one month after the first Soviet arms shipment had landed in Cuba. To make matters worse, Castro openly declared that he intended to use these weapons to export his revolution. Eisenhower decided to send the CIA into action. I received a message saying that uh, people were in Washington were highly concerned about the activities of the prime minister and that uh, they hoped that he would go, you know, to, it would be a change in the government. The next thing I knew, I received a cable saying that someone by the name of Joe would arrive in Leopoldville and I was to take my instructions from him. And the instructions were that I was to remove him physically from, <laughs> in other words, assassinate uh, Lumumba. I asked first, whose instructions are these? And he said, they've come from President Eisenhower. The president wanted this done and I, and I was to put together these poisons and bring them out to you. One of the poisons was a tube of toothpaste that had a poison in it. So that if he'd brushed his teeth with it, that was been the end of the man. All of these things I put in my safe because I didn't want them lying around the office. If somebody made say, may I use your toothpaste? <laughs> I felt that I had some pretty good operations going and in the long term, my operations would achieve the objective of removing Lumumba from office, but not killing him. The Congo plunged into utter chaos. In the confusion, two separate secession movements broke away from Lumumba's government. The country desperately needed to be brought under control. The United States started to worry about it because the Soviets were backing Lumumba. So President Eisenhower said, well, we may have to use NATO there to keep the Soviets out. But finally, uh, cooler heads prevailed, and they asked the UN Security Council to send a peacekeeping operation to the Congo. President Eisenhower made some very basic policies which are still in existence today. And he said that if there are troubles in Africa, we don't want to have to send troops there. Well, Europeans should not send troops. It should all be done by the UN. Lumumba thought that the arrival of the UN peacekeepers would help him bring stability. He was wrong. The UN mission provided the missing ingredient to oust his government. Lumumba had just promoted his personal secretary, Joseph Mobutu, to Army Chief of Staff. Mobutu was to coordinate with the UN troops to stop the country's descent into anarchy. Instead, he turned to Larry Devlin. Mobutu said that the army was very unhappy with the prime minister because he was turning the army over to the Soviets. He wanted to mount a coup d'etat, but there was one condition. 
They had to know that they would have the support of the United States government. I had tried and failed to achieve by legal means what they wanted, the United States government wanted. So I stood up and shook his hand. Finally, it took me a while to do this and said, I guarantee you the support of the United States government. And uh, the coup de, he said the coup will take place within a week, and it did. UN troops were supposed to protect the independence of Congo, but they would not allow the Congolese troops, which were loyal to Lumumba, to operate. The mission of the United Nations troops was misused to topple the regime of the government of Lumumba, or at least not to protect Lumumba. The troops of the Nations Ministry will the residence of the Prime Minister. Sans aucun mandat, sans aucune autorisation, il y a une crise interne. Les Nations Unies s'interposent et vont mettre le Premier ministre en résidence surveillée. Le Mumba's supporters organized his escape. He was sneaked out of his house, bundled up in the back of a government car. Le Bouristère répond que le Mumba était parti de chez lui. On a commencé à le chercher. Mobuta a demandé aux Nations Unies de lui donner les hélicoptères, on l'a poursuivi, on l'a arrêté, on les a mis dans un hélicoptère, on l'a ramené ici ligoté comme un vulgaire bandit. On Mobutu's orders, Patrice Lumumba was sent to his death. It was barely six months since Congo celebrated independence. C'était terrible. Vous enlevez celui qui est le flambeau, l'icône, tout d'un coup, comme ça, et, et d'une façon très barbare, en utilisant les mains africaines. Alors c'était frustrant, c'était écœurant, c'était un appel à l'insurrection populaire. Il faut venger cela. Ce pays est à nous, et je vais me battre pour lui. C'est à l'étincelle qui m'a fait conduire sur le chemin du maquis, de la guérilla. A witch hunt tracking down Lumumba's followers started in the capital. One by one, the Lumumbas fled to the safe haven across the river in Brazzaville. They organized themselves into an armed rebellion led by the 23-year-old Laurent Kabila. Lumumba's assassination resonated throughout the world. The shock was felt clearly in Cuba, where a large percentage of the population traces its origins back to the Congo. Cuba's young revolutionary leaders were appalled. The island declared a three-day official mourning in honor of Lumumba's memory. Cuba shared Africa's revolutionary quest for real independence. What happened to Lumumba could happen anywhere 
if no action was taken. Fidel Castro decided that Cuba could not stand by idly. So Che Guevara went on a two-month tour of Africa to assess how they could help local liberation movements. Che's public appearances hit the true objective of his mission. Cuba's future involvement in Africa was formulated at late night secret meetings with armed liberation movements from different parts of the continent. But Che's hopes were pinned on the Lumumbist rebellion because Kabila and his men had already captured two-thirds of the Congo's territory. Je suis contacté par l'ambassade de Cuba qu'il y a euh, une haute personnalité cubaine qui vient d'arriver qui aurait bien voulu avoir contact avec nous pour s'entretenir avec les leaders du mouvement de libération. Je me pointe à l'ambassade de Cuba. Je suis en face d'Ernesto Che Guevara. Je me suis pincé moi-même. Je dis est-ce que c'est est vrai ou je n'en revenais pas. Pero no porque él confiara que el Congo iba a ser la base de la cual iban a irradiar las columnas para independizar a África. Está seguro de eso. Independientemente de la frontera. Dentro de su concepción de la lucha revolucionaria, de lo que Debrey después llamó el foquismo, un foco guerrillero que irradia hacia las columnas, el Che partía de la ubicación del Congo para que fuera el epicentro de la irradiación de la independencia de l'Afrique pour la caractéristique de la nouvelle frontière. Il dit, bon, nous sommes disposés de prêter main forte. Le but, c'est de former les cadres de la révolution contre le néocolonialisme au Congo, où il y a déjà un espace très ample libéré. Tout ce qu'il promet, c'est l'aide de Cuba au mouvement de libération, avec armes, logistiques et un encadrement. Pas même de combattants. Cuba had not yet devised a clear strategy of how to help liberation movements. But for Che Guevara, one thing was certain. Revolutionaries of the world had to create two or three Vietnams to keep their common enemy occupied on several fronts at once. The solidarity of the weak, or as they labeled it internationalism, was the only means to win an unequal battle. Che returned to Cuba and encouraged Fidel to give logistic support to African revolutions. He argued that Cuba could make a difference there, but he personally wanted to continue working in Latin America. Cuando llega a Cuba, plantea esta convicción de que ya él no era necesario aquí porque ya la revolución cubana estaba consolidada y que él quería irse a otros pueblos. Pero lo primero que plantea es irse para América Latina. Y entonces, Cuando se hace una valoración por Fidel y por todas nuestras dirigencias de la revolución, se llega a la conclusión de que todavía América Latina no tenía las condiciones de seguridad para que él fuera para allí. Está impaciente, pero él, él también la misión de África aprecia mucho. Y entonces yo le propongo eso. En las condiciones de tarea muy importante que hacer, que apoyar el movimiento guerrillero que está en el este, 
contra Mobutu. Un buen día a finales del mes de enero, fui llamado al Estado Mayor del Ejército Central. Inmediatamente me dijo, hace falta que empiece a reclutar a, a un grupo de 30 compañeros de la lucha contra bandido y otro que tú conozcas. Que sean negros, bien negro era la palabra exacta en aquel momento, que estén dispuestos a, a cumplir una misión internacionalista, que puede ser que no regrese ninguno, me dice con claridad. For months, training was concealed in the depths of the Cuban forest. Soldiers were aware that the coming mission would be abroad, but none of them knew where or when it would take place. Drecke was the main contact with the leadership, but even he was in for a surprise. El compañero Manny se fue. Me va a ver y me dice, bueno, hay un comandante y te quiere saludar, que hace tiempo que no te ve, que es muy amigo tuyo. Y lleva varias fotos de una persona, un hombre blanco. Y le digo, oye, Manny, yo no, no me acuerdo, no lo conozco. Este comandante yo no lo conozco, fue un de ellos. Y pasan los días. Inventé unas cuantas gente, dije que te haría que conocieran a un amigo interesantísimo. Alberto Arraolia. Y te veo almorzando. Y veo un señor que está sentado por allá. Dice, madre, mira, este es el comandante Ramón. ¿Tú no lo conoces? Yo no lo conozco. Hasta que el señor interviene y le dice, no chive más, Rey. Y le dice, yo soy el che. Ha sido una de las sorpresas más grandes que he tenido en mi vida, ¿no? Y ninguno lo conoció. Yo desistaba de verdad. Indiscutiblemente fueron muy capaces nuestra gente. ¿verdad? Y él eh, va entonces a un lugar de tirante arriba. Tenía una casa y yo no sé por qué dice. Él escogió a la gente. Él quería. Y ahí sí enviamos un buen refuerzo con el chico. Fueron alrededor de 150 hombres. Bien ganados. Y con una experiencia. Eso era vital para la revolución. Que nadie conociera que era el Che. El Che, igual que Fidel y Raúl, son de los dirigentes más buscados por los terroristas internacionales, por el paralelismo yanqui, para asesinarlo. Vamos para acá para la eh, Empezó a comprar eh, ropa, llevar ropa, ropa interior, esto, la maleta. Los trajes se compraban por serie, ¿no? Serie, un montón de trajes, todos eran igual. Además, casi era la misma talla, casi todo. <ríe> y era calidad, más o menos igual, todo. Eh, la maleta, la maleta grandísima y todo eso, pero la maleta iba vacía. Ahora las dos camisas, dos calzoncillos. Porque el traje todo daba puesto. Entonces, si todos éramos igual, negro, todos vestidos igual, llamaba la atención él. Che Guevara's disguise was more discreet, and his group of 14 men landed in Tanzania without any prior warning. Che's presence had to remain secret, so his identity was not even divulged to the Lumumbists he had come to help. Kabila était au Caire, on m'appelle, j'étais seul. On m'appelle, voilà, le groupe de d'instructeurs cubains est arrivé. À la tête se trouve le commandant Victor Drake, 
qui est un spécialiste du maquis. J'étais très impressionné. Et je suis devant chez Guevara, déguisé. Je ne le reconnais pas. Bueno, Chessa, auxilia un diccionario francés et suahili pour aller ubicant le nom de chacun de los compañeros. En el caso mío me pone el, el uno que es Moya. Y ellos para el primero el uno y es el más grande y que más manda el uno tenía que ponerme a mí el Moya. Se pone el tres tato como médico y como traductor. Es decir, para que no hubiese duda de por qué Che siempre que yo estaba tenía que estar él. Alors me dicen, ¿qué es que hace? Kabila no está aquí. No lo podemos pas traer aquí porque el servicio de espionaje británico trabaja aquí. Américain trabaja aquí. Français trabaja aquí. Il faut organizar très 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 vite la descente vers le front. J'ai fait une communication à Kabila par téléphone, je l'ai appelé au cas. Il a dit, ben, eh, il faut m'attendre, je viens tout de suite. Moi je dis, je ne peux pas attendre, je peux pas l'attendre. Je vais les amener. The Cubans were taken by motorboat to the Lumumba's eastern front on the opposite shore of Lake Tanganyika. Sin una brújula, y ellos que sabían, y por ahí para allá. Y el barco que empieza a coger agua, empezamos a botar agua a todo el mundo, ahí a botar agua, a botar agua, porque no sabíamos, no se veía la orilla, y aquí no se va a salvar nadie. Para y ellos encendiendo luces en medio de la noche para sacar el agua, y el Che gritando, que no sienten las luces, y nosotros gritando, y no nos entendían. Les noms qu'on nous a présentés, ce sont des noms numériques, quoi, arithmétiques, parce qu'ils disaient, voilà, celui-ci, c'est le commandant Moya, celui-ci, c'est Mbili, celui-ci, c'est Tatu. En Swahili, Moya, c'est un, Mbili, c'est deux, Tatu, c'est trois. Alors ça, on ne comprenait pas. Et on se demandait entre nous, comment commentaire, quoi, mais ces gens-là, leur nom, c'est le numéro. Il y avait deux blancs. Et Moja, on nous a présenté que c'est le chef du groupe, qui est le noir. Il disait que là, chez eux, au Akiba, qu'il n'y a pas de racisme. Mais c'était étonnant. C'était difficile de comprendre qu'il y a des pays où un noir dirige un blanc. Parce que nous, on nous a enseigné pendant la colonisation que le plus fort, le plus intelligent et le plus beau, c'est le blanc. Alors, comment est possible maintenant, dans ce pays-là, il y a un petit noir-là qui dirige le blanc The Cubans arrived in eastern Congo, believing that Kabila's men controlled two-thirds of the country's territory. But the situation had changed dramatically since Che had met the Lumumba's leaders a few months earlier. In the meantime, a number of Lumumbists had changed sides. Cleofas Kamitatu was now Mobutu's Minister of Interior, and it was his job to crush the rebellion. Nous avons organisé une opération de récupération du pays en utilisant l'armée, les mercenaires, recruter. Seule la définition classique de mercenaires, il va au plus offrant. Qui leur a offert C'est les États-Unis qui ont offert l'argent par Mobutu interposé aux mercenaires pour qu'ils viennent combattre la rébellion. C'est les États-Unis. C'est Larry Devlin qui a dépensé tout l'argent pour empêcher la rébellion de gagner. Nous avions occupé la, 
une très grande partie de la, de la République. En avril 65, nous, nous venions de perdre presque tous nos grands centres. Il nous restait des poches à l'intérieur. Et il fallait nous réorganiser. C'est en somme au moment où nous, nous venons déjà de subir un grand coup sur le plan militaire que nous, nous aurons alors l'information maintenant de l'arrivée des camarades cubains. Kabila was bogged down in internal divisions after the astounding defeat. So when the Cubans arrived in the rebel territory, coordinating military activities with them was hardly a priority. Alors, Che m'interpelle. Il me dit, écoute, je vais te dire une chose. Rentre, va dire à Kabila, je suis Che Guevara et je l'attends ici. Et moi, j'ai dit, maman mia, je dis, bah. Que fue quand elle empieza à gritar allí, escándalo international, sale de la, de la cabañita de la barraca aquella con las dos manos puestas en la cabeza, escándalo international, escándalo international, dice, cállate, cállate, pero no que cállate, ¿no? gritando por todo aquello, <laughs> parecía que tenía un, <laughs> un león detrás. <laughs> j'ai eu peur, j'ai eu une sueur froide le long de la colonne vertébrale. Je dis, ce n'est pas vrai. Quand je suis arrivé à Dar es Kabila venait d'arriver du Caire, je l'ai raconté, et j'ai supplié Kabila d'aller rejoindre. Il a blémi avec sa face noire, il, a, il était cendreux, il n'en revenait pas. C'était une grande responsabilité de cette personnalité, de l'envergure d'Ernest Che Guevara. L'inquiétude, c'était que si ça venait d'être connu par les Américains qu'Ernest Che Guevara est au Congo, que tout allait être déversé sur le Congo. Mais nous étions contents que les camarades soient là. Mais pas, mais pas lui, pas, pas, pas Che. Che's force was intended as a backup for the guerrillas. But the movement was in disarray, so the Cubans were ordered to wait in the camp until further orders. Very quickly, they realized that there was a huge cultural gap between them and the Africans. Quería enseñar a combatir Esto fue un obstáculo. Muy grande le faltaba esa cultura. Que la que yo digo cuando adquirían se volvía extraordinario soldado. En el movimiento revolucionario africano, aquel movimiento trató de hacer la experiencia, la preparación, la instrucción. Y fue una tarea dura. On pouvait dire qu'on n'avait pas de troupes. Parce qu'ils étaient désorganisés. Nous, normalement, on ne savait pas même pas des armes. On tirait, c'est tout. Alors, cela veut dire que je prenais une arme, je tirais devant, c'est fini. Sans direction de tir, sans une instruction. C'est chargé, tiré devant. Et là même, il fallait aussi avoir peur, parce qu'une balle de ton copain pouvait te prendre, si tu n'es plus devant, comme il, avait, il ne savait pas la discipline de tir. Había que encarar el fusil, había que... eso fue muy difícil para persuadirlo porque eh, eh, había un hábito, no sé por qué, yo no, pero no podían cerrar los, un ojo para buscar el, orga, el ojo directriz, no lo podían hacer. Entonces había que taparle para hacer trinchera. Teníamos ese problema también porque nos aducían que la trinchera era un hueco 
y que el hueco era para los muertos. Por lo tanto, que ellos no se metían en una trinchera. Communications were difficult and the Cubans were getting frustrated. In June, shortly before the anniversary of Congo's independence, a messenger arrived with instructions to attack the major enemy garrison at Fort Bandera. That was the turning point. Había que atacar ese día. Vamos a atacar uno, vamos a hacer otra emboscada, vamos a atacar otro lugar con eso y sorprenderse, no, mantener entonces. Si no le quedó más remedio desde el punto de vista político de aceptarla, porque era estábamos allí y era una negativa en el único momento que ellos venían a pedir que le hiciéramos algo y decirle que no. A las 5 de la mañana, hora de aquel país, empezamos a tirotear el cuartel a fuego rasante contra el cuartel. Esa era la señal de, del ataque. ¿No? Empezó el ataque, ellos inmediatamente respondieron, fue rapidísimo respondieron. Habían corrido ya la primera sangre, era el primer combate que teníamos y ya habían cuatro muertos. Y la actitud que se había producido por parte de los guerrilleros congoleses, por lo que nos informaban los compañeros, no era muy bueno. Eso preocupó a Tato un poco. Él sabía que a partir de ahí le esperaba un, una situación bastante eh, embarazosa. The defeated Fort Bandera and the death of four Cubans compromised the secrecy that the Cubans had taken so much trouble to maintain. Cuando los compañeros salen de Cuba, todo se le cambió la ropa. Nadie podía llevar nada que tuviera que ver con Cuba. Y hay un compañero que lleva un calzoncillo que decía, hecho en Cuba, que uno de los compañeros muerto. Lleva un calzoncillo, cuando lo cogen, aparece un calzoncillo hecho en Cuba, aparece la característica, se percatan de que no son, no son africanos. There were rumors that there was a man known as Tattoo, who was Cuban. Che Guevara had disappeared from Cuba, so it could it be? Well, I suggested to Washington this must be the case, and they told me I was out of my mind. Go on, don't, don't waste your time with ideas like that. But we did, because I had some people that were, uh, shall we say, in contact with the rebels, and working with them part of the time and part of the time against them. What we did, we did pictures of Che with beard, without beard, with mustache, no beard, with beard and mustache, Che with glasses, Che without glasses. And we showed them to these people. And one, I don't remember which combination it was, it came up with, ah, that's tattoo. When I concluded it must be Che, that told me that this is a Soviet operation. They don't want to use their own troops, they use surrogates. It was clear that there weren't a great many, but more could come. Clearly, they were getting their supplies, guns, ammunition, etc., coming across Lake Tanganyika. We supplied equipment to the Congolese to use, such as boats on the lake, to try and stop this supply chain that was coming. With the reinforcement, Mobutu's mercenaries started bombardment. The lake which was a lifeline for the rebels, was constantly patrolled. The situation was critical, and Che's presence in the area further complicated the problem. Mobutu, 
nous avons compris qu'ils veulent mettre le papier et qu'ils nous ont repéré. Nous considérons qu'il était très dangereux à ce moment-là pour le pied de rester à l'intérieur. Alors, nous avons profité de ça pour dire, voilà, c'est vraiment pas le moment, ça devient trop dangereux pour le convaincre de quitter momentanément le pays. Il ne voulait pas décrocher, il ne voulait pas partir. Je, je vu même, je dis, mais c'est suicidaire. Si cet homme-là meurt ici, quelle responsabilité historique Oh, il fallait prier Dieu, même s'il n'y avait pas de croyants. Même si parmi nous, il y avait ceux qui ne croyaient pas tout à fait en Dieu. En tous les cas, il fallait que Dieu ne tombe pas sur le sol congolais. Parce que si jamais cela pouvait nous arriver, mais on allait avoir sur nos têtes toute la condamnation des de, 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 de révolutionnaires du monde entier. Et nous serions traités de, de tous les noms. But Che refused to leave. He insisted that the rebels should get organized. However, Che could not ignore the mounting international pressure against foreign troops in the Congo. The African Union met to condemn foreign intervention. Only this time, the African leaders did not just denounce Mobutu's mercenaries. They also criticized Cuba's support for the rebel forces. Porque tenía una confianza absoluta en, en el triunfo. Así de, no, es como el comandante que teníamos al frente, el Che. No, no había otro mejor. Es Fidel, te manda un mensaje al Che. Si sí, hubiera habido que meter más tropas voluntarios, había así. De sobra. Pero realmente yo no tenía perspectivas. Entonces yo le pedimos que se repliegue. Ya aquella gente, en aquel fondo, entonces también le dijimos, pero bueno, que usted no es de aquí. Y usted está viendo, no es un problema interno de nosotros, ni interno de nadie, es una decisión de los pueblos africanos. Entonces, ante eso no le quedó más remedio que retirarse. Y ya aceptó irnos. Concretamente, cuando ya nos íbamos, él me dijo, oye, nos vamos a retirar. El perrito que está ahí, no lo dejé. Ese era un perrito chiquitico que él tenía allí. Y entonces, pero yo iba cargado. Entonces, ¿dónde me llevo el perrito? Entonces me lo metí por aquí. Me lo metí aquí, pero el perrito cuando va ahí, que vamos bajando la loma, que ya nos vamos retirando, ya nos dijo, nos vamos retirando, hay que tratar de llegar lo más rápidamente posible allí, ¿entiendes? Que vamos a establecer contacto con Changa, que está en el lago, ¿Eh? avanzamos y entonces el perrito me empieza a lamer y entonces aquello yo no lo podía aguantar y le dije oiga voy a tener que botar el perro y me dijo oye aguanta con el perro ese que llegue hasta el lago y le dijo que habíamos perdido una batalla pero que no se había perdido la guerra quedaba mucho 
que hacer por la independencia de los pueblos y que esperaba que todos nosotros hiciéramos algo y que estuviéramos con ese espíritu de combatividad, de internacionalismo. Che's mission to the Congo had been a total failure, but that did not change Cuba's determination to continue its support for liberation movements. For Fidel Castro, it was the method, how and whom to help, that needed to be reconsidered. In January of 1966, only two months after Che retreated from the Congo, Cuba hosted an unprecedented gathering that included virtually every armed revolutionary movement from the three poorest continents. The Tricontinental Conference reinforced the island's role as the leader of internationalism. For Fidel, this was a good opportunity to assess the qualities of the revolutionaries he wanted to support. It was undoubtedly Amilcar Cabral who stole the limelight. Cabral, only 31 years old, was leading a fierce struggle against the Portuguese Empire in one of Africa's smallest and poorest nations, Guinea-Bissau. Esta conferencia aquí en Cuba, territorio libre de América, e primero país socialista en el hemisferio occidental, es en realidad una grande promesa, una grande esperanza para todos los pueblos que luchan contra el imperialismo. Pero ya había una, un antecedente de América cuando se había entrevistado en el recorrido que hace el Che por distintos países que llega a Conakry y tiene la oportunidad de hablar con América. Y el Che dice que es uno de los movimientos de liberación más serios que hay en ese momento y de más posibilidad en ese momento es el movimiento de liberación de la colonia de Guinea-Bissau y Cabo Verde. Après les grands discours de Fidel Castro, Amilcar Cabral fait un discours remarquable. Il a caractérisé, je m'appelle ça, très bien la situation en Afrique, en partir de son propre pays, en parlant des ethnies, en parlant d'états de, de pauvreté, d'exploitation, pour justifier l'idée de conduire l'alternance, c'est parce qu'il n'y avait pas autre voie, parce que les grandes puissances s'opposaient for years Amilcar's struggle was not of much consequence but when the guerrillas started capturing territory suddenly the importance of this neglected colony became evident for Portugal much more was at stake in Guinea-Bissau this tiny colony could prove to be the empire's Achilles heel y se liberaba Guinea-Bissau y así se demostró después. Se desprendía la liberación del resto de los, de los países de, de habla portuguesa que colonizados. Entonces, allí era, estaba el eslabón más flojo que tenían de la cadena, desde el punto de vista de los portugueses. No podían permitir, tuvieron hasta que hicieron todo el esfuerzo para no permitir que se dejara ninguna de las colonias, y mucho menos Guinea, que iba a ser el ejemplo del resto de las colonias para su liberación. Guinée n'avait pas beaucoup de richesses à ce moment-là. La Guinée devait recevoir de l'argent du Portugal. 
C'était un pays où on faisait l'agriculture, pas plus. L'agriculture arriérée, on faisait la Guinée. Hein? Tandis que ce n'était pas le cas en Angola où il y avait des, des immigrés, qui étaient des commerçants, des hommes d'affaires. C'était des richesses, des richesses de l'Angola et de Mozambique qu'ils voyaient. Parce que Guinée n'ont rien fait. The Portuguese were aware of their weakness, but they held the trump card. The government leased a strip of land on the Azores Islands to the U.S. Defense Department. That airbase was used to protect American allies in the east, like Israel and Saudi Arabia. But the lease was renewable annually, so Portugal had every intention to use the Azores airbase as a bargaining chip. Well, under the fascist regime uh, of Portugal, Angola and Mozambique and Guinea-Bissau were part of Portugal. So the idea of giving up these colonies uh, was unthinkable for that regime. So if we went to them and said, look, you must get out of Angola, we'll be very upset with you and all that, they could, might well have cut us out of the Azores. So uh, NATO and the Cold War was far more important to us. There was a special law about not allowing U.S. arms given to Portugal to use them in, the, in, the, uh, in Africa, but they did violate it, and we didn't do anything about it. We, in fact, we did not cut them off, even though we knew that they were using them. We didn't want to comme disait Amilcar, nous étions des nationalistes africains, sans option idéologique. Amilcar knew that it would be difficult to avoid labeling his movement, and having Cuban fighters would do little to dispel the belief that they were firmly allied to the Eastern Bloc. But he had a vision and a very clear strategy as to how to fight his battle for independence. Es decir, que América no llega pidiendo, deme hombres, mándeme hombres, ¿no? Teníamos la idea de que habíamos sacado ya del Congo, de que venían a venir más tropas de cubanos a ayudar a América. Y en aquel momento América no quería más tropas de cubanos. Son los guineanos que tienen que luchar. Y tú metes un batallón ahí, va a ser el batallón y no lo cobran. Y tienen que aprender, mediante la lucha, prepararse para, cuando, para la victoria. Es una idea muy... Aunque fuera un poco más larga la lucha, era una idea muy interesante de ir forjando en medio de la lucha la nación. Hay que forjar una nueva nación, además, tribus diferentes, solo la lucha por unirlas. Che's defeat in the Congo was still a fresh wound, and Fidel began to consider how his help could be more effective. This time, the bulk of Cuban support came in the form of artillery experts, doctors, and technicians. Soldiers would go only if requested. They also took some lessons from their debacle in Congo. In Guinea-Bissau, the involvement was quite different. It was more of, in a good sense, technical nature of helping local forces of PAGC, the army, especially helping in those specialities when they hadn't, hadn't got enough expertise, you see, to fight Portuguese. So it's more of, in a good sense, supportive role, you see. Amilcar had no illusions about his capacity 
to defeat the mighty Portuguese empire. He wanted to wear them down in order to get them to the negotiating table. In the conversation that he has with me, in the front, he explains that they were based on not attacking the quarters with intentions to destroy them. Because there was not sufficient force in the conditions at that moment for that. Yo quería era desangrar, hacerle baja, bastante baja al enemigo y hacerle la vida imposible con ese tipo de, de, de combate. Hasta que se le haría la vida imposible en los cuarteles. The war escalated and the Portuguese sent 22,000 more soldiers. Amilcar's demoralization tactics had worked. The Portuguese felt trapped. Veteran captains from the colonial army in Guinea-Bissau decided to take the initiative in their own hands. It was they who overthrew the dictatorship, creating the Carnation Revolution in Portugal. And within months, the Portuguese colonial empire crumbled like a house of cards. In every this liberation movement, there was no military victory. Never. And they did not destroy the colonial machine, but they created, even vis-a-vis -vis Algeria and France for that matter, they created such a situation that before getting victory, they obliged, they forced the enemy to retreat, to come to some compromise. Usually it's in the form, it's compromise. In the essence, it's the victory of the liberation forces. That's exactly happened in each and every country. The Portuguese army left Guinea-Bissau in October 1974. But the man who pushed the empire over the brink was not there to witness the fruits of his struggle. Amilcar Cabral was killed a year earlier by members of the Portuguese secret police. The who's who of revolutionaries gathered at Amilcar's tomb. Beside Fidel Castro stood Agostino Neto, the leader of Angola's liberation movement. Cuba had for years been supporting Neto's movement, but the scale of Fidel Castro's military involvement in Angola after the collapse of the Portuguese empire would soon change the face of the continent. Welcome See back. part two next Tuesday at 10.30 here on BBC4. And of course, uh, that was um, a audio documentary on uh, Cuba and the African Revolution, the armed phase of the African Revolution. And uh, we're going to uh, listen to more of this uh, history, often hidden history, uh, within the imperialist countries and the imperialist influence countries on uh, the level of revolutionary uh, pan <laughs> Uh, of course, which led uh, to the total liberation of Southern Africa and, of course, the advancement 
of revolutionary movements uh, throughout the country, the continent of Africa. We'll take a break. We'll be back with our final segment. Castro and 500,000 Cubans took part in the African wars which ended colonialism. This little-known story began in the 1960s when Che Guevara fought in the Congo. His mission failed, but Cuba continued helping African revolutions. Amilcar Cabral's rebellion in Guinea-Bissau dealt a serious blow to the last colonial empire. 
but it was the scale of Fidel Castro's military involvement in Angola that would change the face of the continent. In 1974, the Carnation Revolution in Portugal brought down the dictatorship. Guinea-Bissau was the first colony to be granted independence, and Mozambique quickly followed. Angola was the empire's gem from where most of the colonial wealth had come. Ending colonial rule there was not going to be simple. Augustino Neto of the MPLA had since the early 60s firmly allied his movement with the Eastern Bloc. Like Lumumba and Amilcar, his struggle against colonialism had quickly won Cuban military support. La Unión Soviética tenía relaciones con el MPLA y por los contactos con la dirección del MPLA eh, veíamos que era un movimiento progresista y independentista de verdad. El pensamiento de Neto era socialista. Ahora, Neto era un hombre independiente. Nosotros somos socialistas también. The Angolan liberation struggle had been more complex from the start. Other than Neto's MPLA, Angola had two other rival anti-colonial movements. Holden Roberto's FNLA was based in the north of the country and received arms and training from the U.S., mainly via Mobutu in Zaire. Jonas Savimbi's UNITA was based in the south, and they too got American support which was mainly channeled through apartheid South Africa. Pour nous, ben, c'était les camps occidentaux, n'est-ce pas, qui avaient les mêmes idées que nous. Et de l'autre côté, il y avait l'UPLA, qui était carrément dans le camp marxiste-léniniste. Le communisme était l'opposé du christianisme. Eh bien, c'était clair, parce que si nous étions profondément chrétiens, je suis chrétien, ben, et la, la majorité de gens de Fenlin étaient des chrétiens et des militants, ben, on ne veut pas être d'accord avec le communisme. The world was divided, West and East. Those who were supported by URSS, they were not welcomed by Americans. Therefore, vice versa. But the Angolans, to get weapons, to get diplomatic support, to get political support, they must join to one side. This brought a division among the Angolans. We were passing all the time, accusing each other and losing time keeping our fighting internal, not to fight against the colonies. Independence was within reach if only the three movements could agree to sit around the same table and decide the destiny of their country. After months of mediation efforts, the three delegations flew to the Portuguese town of Alvor to negotiate terms of independence. To go to Alvora, everyone was afraid. What will what the Portuguese will do? Maybe we'll arrest somebody, we'll kill somebody. 
And when we arrived there, the leader, they don't want to eat, to touch anything to eat. They say, no, you are the young boys. You are the first to, be, to eat. When I will see one of the boys dying, I know that he's poisoned. Distrust was toward the Portuguese and distrust also among ourselves. We went to all of us to Penina Hotel. The first problem that occurred in Penina was the way the Portuguese put us. The ground floor was a place for the conference. The first floor was UNITA. The second floor was the FNLA. The third floor was Empelier. The last floor was the Portuguese. We didn't like this structure. People just thinking that there is a plotting, plotting, plotting. We think that during the night, maybe Empelier was negotiating with the Portuguese government. So many news were circulating. Rumors. Hey, my friend, you are sleeping. Oh, that they are negotiating. You know, this is a very bad atmosphere. The FNLA and UNITA feared that their local opponent, the MPLA, would be favored by the new leftist Portuguese regime. But it soon became obvious that the Marxist captains simply wanted to end the bloody chapter of colonial wars. For a week, they sat around the negotiating table, hammering out Angola's transition to independence. We said, first of all, when are we going to be independent? And the date of November 11th was proposed by Cusionet. He said that uh, 11th of November was the Armistice Day, and we should be independent on that day. Let's be frank. The Three Liberation Movement participated for the struggle for independence. There is unanimity. But who will be the first president? There was not agreement. The Alvor Agreement vaguely outlined the transition, but the shaky deal did not provide a solid basis to overcome the years of mutual hatred. It needed no more than a spark to revive the fighting. The three leaders wanted to be heads of state before elections. They did not want to wait for November 11th. Each one brought its own army. On a commencé à apprendre que les fédérales étaient en train d'introduire des armes. Parce qu'ils voulaient, avant la, la programmation de l'indépendance, prendre une position. Alors, la décision qu'on a prise, c'est expulser les gens du FLNA et l'unité de Luanda. Each faction tried to gain control of the capital. Whoever held Luanda on the night of November 11th would be officially recognized by the outside world as the legitimate government of Angola. As the fighting intensified, the superpowers stepped in to fan the flames. This was no longer a civil war in the far corner of Africa. The crisis quickly turned into a full-blown superpower confrontation, where Angola was no more than the battlefield. This struggle in Africa broke out after Vietnam. The United States was highly sensitive at the time to the fact that it had been driven from the field in Vietnam and that our opponents, uh, namely Moscow, would take advantage of this period of American weakness or the perception of American weakness to secure 
geopolitical gains elsewhere. If the MPLA achieved power with its strong connections to the Cubans and to the Russians, you would see the first serious physical penetration of the East Bloc into African affairs. And we regarded that as a strategic threat. We provided arms and financing to hire uh, mercenaries, provide trainers, provide weaponry uh, to El Roberto's uh, armed elements. And through Mobutu, that equipment and funding was put before the uh, FNLA. Et après, ben, l'aide a augmenté. Et chacun devait aider ses alliés. C'est tout à fait normal. Les Soviétiques l'ont fait pour le MPLA. N'est-ce pas Les Américains ben, l'ont fait pour le Fénéral d'Unita. Une opération américaine montée par le gouvernement américain. Officiellement. Il n'y avait aucun secret. Not only the Americans were keen to contain the possible Soviet influence in the region. To the south of Angola, Apartheid South Africa was eyeing developments with concern. Communism, as far as South Africa was concerned, was a real threat. A threat in the sense of dictating, taking over um, uh, the whole of the country. And we couldn't have that situation here in South Africa, that they could come through and instigate and uh, plant the uh, ideology of Marxism here in Southern Africa. And that meant we're the next target. We're the cherry on the cake. The South African Defense Force decided to move into Angola. There, they immediately found natural allies in the local movements that had been chased out of Luanda by Neto's leftist MPLA. I, one who received the generals from South Africa, and I remember the commander of the troops, Tell me clear, who are you? I say, I am George Valentin, representative of UNITA. I don't know. You are not MPLA. No, I am UNITA. I'm sure, I'm, I'm afraid. I don't know. I didn't receive orders to find UNITA here. We came to defend FNLA and to fight against the communists and so on to arrive in Luanda to put FNLA in power. But there is UNITA. They stopped to phone to Pretoria to ask, what we can do with the troops of UNITA here. À l'époque, l'Afrique du Sud représentait l'horreur, l'apartheid, mais qu'est-ce que vous voulez Le cadre était différent et la, et la guerre avait dépassé ben, nos niveaux. Le conflit s'est internationalisé. Et entre deux mots, vous choisissez le moindre. Pour nous, à l'époque, c'était le moindre mal. Évidemment, c'était l'apartheid. Eh bien, on avait besoin de l'aide. Malgré nous, on a accepté ça. Ça, c'est la vérité. That phase was the phase of guns and the money. You don't have guns and money, you don't have power. You can have dreams. You don't have, you, if you have no guns, you have no, no, no money, no politics. The scheduled date for independence was approaching fast. With U.S. logistical support, 
the FNLA troops, accompanied by soldiers from Mobutu's regular army, advanced from the north. UNITA soldiers, along with the South African army, moved up from the south. The MPLA, despite receiving consignments of Soviet weapons, suddenly found itself at a disadvantage. Y Angola lo que necesitaba era combatientes y armas allí en ese momento. Cuando están los surafricanos avanzando, no, no se puede esperar el 11 de noviembre. Si esperamos el 11 de noviembre, llegan los surafricanos y llega eh, Mobuto a Luanda y no hay independencia. Neto, y se envió un mensaje al gobierno soviético, pero ya ellos no estaban dispuestos a hacer nada dentro de Angola hasta el 11 de noviembre. Nosotros sí estuvimos dispuestos. Temos aproveitado imenso da experiência da Revolução Cubana. Sentido, por outro lado, uma solidariedade extraordinária do povo, um entusiasmo que não podemos medir. Quando nós decidimos pedir a Cuba uma ajuda, fizemos uma pedido formal. Pois é, a mensagem chega da Fidel é muito maior. Então ultrapassa-nos. O nosso pedido é ultrapassado. É isso, vocês vão ser esmagados. Não é só isso que vocês precisam. Quando se produz o 23 de outubro, la invasión de Angola por tropas regulares de África del Sur, no podíamos cruzarnos de brazos. Y cuando el MPLA solicitó nuestra ayuda, le ofrecimos la ayuda necesaria para impedir que el apartheid se instalara en Angola. Nos teníamos pedido lá, um pacote de rebuçados. Eu disse, não, um pacote de rebuçados não, vocês precisam de 80 sacos de açúcar, eh, tantos litros de água, preciso de uma misturadora, preciso... <risos> Eu trouxe um, um plano muito mais completo. E como não tem ainda cozinheiros, eu tenho cozinheiros aqui, eu posso mandar... <risos> This was not to be another covert operation like those Cuba had conducted in Africa throughout the 1960s. Fidel had decided to engage overtly in Angola. Cuba's elite special forces were dispatched along with 35,000 foot soldiers to help Neto's men. Operation Carlota guaranteed that Cuba would play a major role on the Angolan battlefield. Переброска кубинских войск в Африку застала нас совершенно врасплох. Мы ничего об этом не знали. Пришла телеграмма от посла нашего в Гвинее, что садятся самолеты с кубинскими значит, войсками на борту, солдатами. У нас схватили за голову. Просто было недовольство. Недовольство, что вот кубинцы действуют без не посоветовавшись и действуют неосторожно. Но вот оно консультаму сажем. Если мы там haciendo movilización y enviando grande cantidad de hombres para Angola. Eso no se puede hacer en secreto. 
Le podemos dar un 10 personas en secreto, le podemos dar 36 mil hombres en secreto, si es una operación abierta. Но я знаю некоторых членов руководства, которые, так сказать, наполовину возмущались. Ну как же они без спроса, понимаете, идут там авантюру. Ну вот, ну пришлось примириться. Что? Что делать? Никаких э, санкций мы не предпринимали в отношении Кубы. Они имели уже советское оружие уже имели и мы повторяю если бы вот серьезно значит возражать против этого нам надо было с кубинцами поссориться куба была предпольем к соединенным штатам у нас там были военные сооружения важные для нас как стратегический пункт куба была очень важна We were worried about Cuban involvement because at that stage the talks about limitation of strategic weapons were taking place. There was talk about Brezhnev's visit to the United States, which never take place, by the way, after this episode. My assumptions then were that the involvement of the Cubans was Russian-driven. It took me years later to reach a different conclusion, that the Cubans uh, played to bring the Russians in in support. Uh, that news reached Washington in the summer of 75, and I remember it was greeted with considerable concern. This is the first time foreign military forces had been introduced onto the continent of Africa since the colonial period back at the turn of the century. First time. We felt at that point that it was necessary to face this Cuban issue head on, square on. Cuba is a red flag in the United States because anything that Cuba does, we hate. So when they send troops to uh, Angola, we had no choice but to say this is the end of detente, even though the Soviets really were not responsible. To see Cubans operating anywhere outside of Cuba was something that we considered a defeat for the United States. ¿Y por qué están irritados? Porque lo tenían todo planeado para apoderarse de Angola antes del 11 de noviembre. Angola es un territorio rico en recursos naturales. Cabinda tiene grandes recursos petroleros. Algunos imperialistas se preguntan ¿por qué ayudamos a los angoleños? ¿Que ¿Qué intereses tenemos nosotros allí? Ellos están acostumbrados a pensar que cuando un país hace algo es porque está buscando petróleo o cobre o diamante o algún recurso natural. No. Nosotros no buscamos ningún interés material y los imperialistas, lógico, que no lo entiendan. Porque seguían por criterios exclusivamente chauvinistas, nacionalistas, egoístas. Estamos cumpliendo un elemental deber internacionalista cuando ayudamos al pueblo de Angola. All the pieces were in place for a final showdown. It was only a week to November 11th and all the warring parties were converging on Luanda. It seemed that the new nation would be strangled at birth. The final clash took place at Kifongondo, only 30 miles from the capital. 
Mais la bataille de Kifongonde était une bataille décisive. Ben, on voulait à tout prix arriver à Luanda. Et c'est la vérité pour empêcher que le PLA proclame de façon unilatérale l'indépendance. Queriam fazer uma sandwich, né? E foi difícil, foi. Muitas vezes não dormimos a pensar como é que íamos defender. Foi quando então a unidade assim, uma companhia que chegou aqui, foi no dia anterior à batalha de Fangor. Chegou uma companhia do Cubano, isso lembro meu bem. Foi uma coisa surpresa, né? não foi dizer que a gente sabia que iam chegar. Então ficamos satisfeitos quando soubemos que na retaguarda estava uma companhia de cubanos. E isto desde que os cubanos conseguiram desembarcar em Cabo do material de guerra, que foi transportado a altas horas da, manhã, da noite, ou quase já de madrugada, via os tais órgãos de Stalin, os lança-foguetes de 40 canos. Quando os cubanos começam com os canhões, com os morteiros e os órgãos de Stalin a fazer um, uma preparação de fogo incrível. La première fois quand ils ont utilisé les fusées là, les orgues de Staline, c'était formidable, c'était pas manipulé par les Angolais. Quand ils nous ont bombardés avec ça, ben, nos hommes qui n'étaient pas habitués, ben, c'était la grande panique. The MPLA won the decisive battle at Kifongondo. And on the night of November 11th, 1975, 400 years of Portuguese colonialism ended. Augustino Neto was recognized as Angola's first president. Fidel tinha mandado uma caixa que era tudo tabaco coiba. E o Neto que não fumava. E o presidente Neto manda pedir fósforos. E alguém trouxe fósforos. E ele acendeu um tabaco. É a primeira vez na vida que eu vi. O presidente Neto dar uma bafurada. Quando toda a gente começou assim, a estranhar-se, a dizer: Olha, ele repara que estão todos a olhar para ele e diz assim: Foi fidel como Deus. The fighting did not stop with the Declaration of Independence. The United States did not recognize Neto's presidency and was more adamant than ever to dislodge his Soviet-backed government. But the American Congress feared that they would get entangled in another Vietnam. So they decided to prohibit all U.S. clandestine support to Angola. Once the U.S. supplies dried up, the MPLA managed to contain its local rivals. The South African army also withdrew from Angola but it continued to arm and train Jonas Savimbi's UNITA rebels. Augustino Neto had won the first round of the battle for independence, so he invited Fidel Castro 
to celebrate the victory his army had helped win. It was a moment of glory for Cuba. Since the 1960s, Fidel had supported no less than 17 African revolutions, but none of his ventures had been as successful as this. African leaders competed to express their personal gratitude. For three weeks, Fidel toured the continent where he was treated as a hero of African independence. Cuba's internationalist policy had finally borne fruit. In the late 1970s, Angola no longer made international headlines, but Augustino Neto had not yet managed to end the civil war. Jonas Savimbi's forces continued the guerrilla attacks from the south of the country. So Neto requested that a Cuban contingent remain in Angola to help the national army. In 1979, Neto died before seeing his country attain true and stable independence. It was his disciple, the young Marxist ideologue of the MPLA, José Eduardo dos Santos, who would now have to confront the coming battles. Less than a year after Neto's death, Ronald Reagan was elected President of the United States. His vision of the Cold War was to alter the course of events in Southern Africa. Reagan felt, uh, as a strong Cold Warrior, that we wanted to do everything possible to counter the Soviet Union and there was this feeling that we want to do to them what they did to us. And it wasn't just Africa, it was the entire world. And he saw Angola was a perfect place because there were Soviet advisors, Cuban troops, a government that was very pro-Soviet. So he says, how can we counter the Soviets there, make life difficult for them the way they made life difficult for us in Vietnam? The broad message was that America is back. We were going to engage in a more shall we say, a more robust diplomacy in which uh, the use of power in all its elements, not just military, but diplomatic, strategic, economic, was going to be, uh, was going to be used. Reagan wanted the Cubans out of Angola, and U.S. policy in southern Africa had to concentrate on achieving this objective. The American plan was to propose to the African leaders something they desperately wanted and in return, link that offer to the withdrawal of Cuban troops from Angola. I guess I was inspired more than anything else with a conversation I had with Julius Nereri, the then president of Tanzania. He said, um, Mr. Crocker, the Southern African process must begin in Namibia. That's where, it must, that's where you must focus your efforts. That's where you must start your efforts. Namibia is the key. He didn't really want to hear a lot about Cubans in Angola, he recognized ultimately that we were serious about that agenda, but he said begin in Namibia. Since 1975, South African troops had conducted the war in Angola from Namibian territory. But when South Africa pulled out of Angola, 
its troops remained in Namibia. SWAPO, Namibia's liberation movement, regarded the apartheid government as colonizers and demanded their immediate withdrawal. Their case won support in 1978 at the UN when Resolution 435 unanimously demanded that South Africa evacuate its troops from Namibia and grant it full independence. But South Africa refused to withdraw and SWAPO in turn decided to intensify its armed struggle from its military bases in neighboring Angola. The apartheid regime felt besieged, but they were reluctant to conduct another full-scale invasion of Angola. The alternative was obvious. Jonas Savimbi and his UNITA rebel army, which South Africans had continued to arm, needed the proper means to eliminate the border threat and ultimately rid them of the incumbent Marxist regime in Angola. We had to sell the Savimbi. Savimbi was fighting a war and he was fighting the Soviet Union plus the Cubans. And we had to sell him as a product. He had to go to the White House. He had to meet the President of the United States. Then that would have elevated him amongst his own people. And we needed him to be in that position. We used the Christian religion to extent to portray Savimbi and what he was doing here in Angola uh, to salvage all the damage done by the MPLA towards the church. Now, we made videos of uh, Dr. Savimbi and we showed it in America. And that video changed the attitude towards Savimbi. And because of that, we got him through. Jonas Savimbi was, like much of Africa, willfully misunderstood by American politicians. If you know nothing about a place, you feel free to paint it with your own fantasies. And for many Americans, Africa was the land of Tarzan or Shaka Zulu or some other romantic, preposterous figure. And Jonas Savimbi fit in that category. Uh, for the right wing, he was a sort of Robin Hood. For the left wing, he was a diabolical monster. Well, he was a very charismatic personality with a good speaking voice, with a tremendous amount of, of self-confidence. Uh, he was a, a kind of physical leader. Uh, some people would say warlord. But he could also sit across the table and engage in an extremely impressive, erudite conversation in six different languages. This was a very accomplished personality. And, and his very facility with uh, cross-cultural communication made him effective internationally. He was able to go to visit the evangelical people in Texas and Mississippi and Louisiana and get their support. And this was very strong Republican territory. So they started saying, well, here's the true anti-communist, the man who can beat the Soviets in Angola. And Reagan got caught up in all of this and treated him like a hero. Savimbi got the international recognition he sought and became Reagan's new best friend. UNITA became the most sophisticated liberation movement to date, but Savimbi wanted more. Reagan said, uh, my friend, what can I do for you today? And Savimbi said, uh, President, 
I did not come here to ask for money. I did not come here to ask for military uniforms or boots or even medicines. Then Reagan said, but what do you, what do you want, my friend? To say what you want. You don't want money or nothing. What on earth can I give you to help you? And Sabim said, Mr. President, this time I came here to ask you for the stingers. <laughs> when he said stingers, Casey stood up and said, Mr. President, this is a restricted weapon. Even our friends in Saudi Arabia do not have it. Then Reagan said for a few seconds like this, and looked at Casey and said, the man wants stingers, give him stingers. Like that. The man wants stingers, give him the stingers. We weren't that enthusiastic about the stingers. But uh, basically, uh, he made a very good military argument. He said that if I can neutralize the Angolan Air Force, and if I can neutralize their, uh, their tanks, that's all I need in order to complete my ability to stalemate the war. That was their objective. It was not defeat of the MPLA. It was negotiations. While the CIA was busy strengthening Savimbi's military power, Chester Crocker's team at the State Department were struggling to sell their peace process that aimed to get Cuban troops out of Angola in return for South African departure from Namibia. Para defender Angola do sul africano, não é da UNITA, é do sul africano, estão um perigo aí na fronteira. E então, a única forma de que as tropas sul-africanas não sejam um perigo para a nossa fronteira é que os sul-africanos também se retirem da Namíbia. E aí, a parte cubana estava de acordo. Eles diziam, bom, se a nossa retirada leva a que haja um país africano que se torne independente, disse, de acordo. Do the South Africans go first or the South Africans wait for the Cubans? You can imagine the kind of discussions we had with this interesting cast of characters. The South Africans said, we may consider implementing Resolution 435 once all the Cubans have gone home. <laughs> Thank you very much, we said to uh, Foreign Minister Vic Boda, but that won't sell. And by the same token, the Angolans said, of course, once the South Africans have gone home, there's no problem, we don't need Cubans, it's not an issue, so why do you have to negotiate it? It stands to reason, it will just happen. <laughs> So we'd say to the Angolans, try selling that in Pretoria. <laughs> you know. Six years of shuttle diplomacy and very little had been achieved. Time was running out and Reagan's second term as president was coming to an end. The warring parties wanted to negotiate, but each needed to fortify its position before sitting at the negotiating table. The MPLA forces asked the Soviets for help to crush Savimbi's stronghold once and for all. You had the uh, Soviet doctrine coming through, hard and clear. You don't stop, you attack, you attack, you attack. You do the same thing, you go to hiding every day, but you couldn't care less, you come, you come. That's what happened. I mean, first of all, they threw in 21st Battalion. It got a hiding. Then they threw in 59 Battalion. It got a hiding. Then they threw in 47 Battalion. It got a hiding. 
Durante varios años, el pensamiento militar nuestro y el pensamiento militar soviético en Angola no se pusieron de acuerdo. Porque los asesores soviéticos, gente brillante desde el punto de vista de la guerra, para hacer la guerra mundial, para tomar Berlín, sin embargo no entendían bien lo que había que hacer en Angola. Pero bueno, los soviéticos eran los que asesoraban a la FAPLA, era soviética, no era cubana. Por lo tanto ellos decidían. Nosotros podíamos darnos otro minuto, no estamos de acuerdo, pero bueno, si quieren hacerlo, pueden hacerlo. Nosotros no somos dueños ni de Angola, ni de la FAPRE, ni de la Unión Soviética. No participamos. The Angolan troops and their Soviet advisors were routed at the Lomba River. The Soviets left behind a litter of burnt-out vehicles and discarded equipment. Over 2,000 Angolans died in this battle alone. To make matters worse, part of the army was encircled. The Cubans could not stand by and watch their allies being crushed. They felt, I guess, that they had to listen to the Soviets when it came to military advice until the Lamba River fiasco and, and uh, the initiative of Fidel Castro coming forward and saying, Soviets don't know how to fight in African wars. We do. El 15 de noviembre, reunión del Estado Mayor y la Dirección, presidida por Fidel, se tomó la decisión y resolver el problema de una vez y para siempre. Expulsar a los surafricanos de Angola. Para expulsar a los surafricanos de Angola no eran con 10 hombres ni con los 20.000 que teníamos. Se requerían grandes fuerzas antiaéreas, aéreas, blindados y artillería. Sacando de nuestra propia fuerza sacándolas de Cuba, toda la, la, la mejor artillería antiaérea que tenemos en Cuba se envió para allá. Cuando teníamos aquí las amenazas de agresión contra Cuba, el gobierno Reagan, todo eso. Pero bueno, había que resolver aquella situación. As in 1975, the decision to send additional Cuban troops was not discussed with Moscow. In November of 1987, the Russian-Cuban relations were more tense than ever. The rise of Mikhail Gorbachev to power has visibly changed Soviet priorities regarding the Third World. Дела пошли таким образом, что было не до Африки уже. Горбачев, когда пришел к власти, потому что в центре политики были отношения с Соединенными Штатами, перестал интересоваться африканскими делами по-настоящему. То есть мы убежали из третьего мира. Мы, э, так сказать, выражаясь старым языком, сдали все позиции американцам. It became more and more apparent to us that there were serious problems between the Cubans and the Russians. They feared Gorbachev and Reagan's coming to agreement. The Russians, for their part, uh, began to, because they couldn't afford it, cut back on the level of subsidy to Cuba, thus giving the Cubans even less reason to be beholden to them. And Angola, in this context, became even more important to the Cubans, even as the Russians came to see it as an embarrassment 
and an obstacle to better relations with the United States. It was that point that the Cubans made the decision to basically double the forces they had in Angola. Basically, if you wanted to find out how many Cubans there are, you start counting baseball diamonds from satellites, and we could, we could, we could look down. <laughs> Cuban army regulations required a baseball field for every certain number of troops. So when they built a baseball field, a new one, you knew there was an addition of troops. When they closed the baseball field, you knew some had left. Massive Cuban reinforcements were flown in to rescue the trapped MPLA forces. The final confrontation between the Cuban, Angolan and South African armies took place around the tiny village of Cuito Cuanaval. Now do you see this type of air traffic? You've got to think, you've got to say what the hell is going on? They started hating us. We knew where the operation headquarters were. We knew where the anti-aircraft and the artillery, and we opened fire. Achava-se que se se ganhasse em Cuito Canaval, pois estava aberta a via para avançarem para o norte de Angola. E era um ponto importante de defesa estratégica, mas é uma vila. As pessoas falam da cidade do Cuito Canaval, aquilo é uma pequena vila. Tanto que nós às vezes trazíamos tropas, né? tropas da, do centro ou do norte, vamos para Cuito Canaval. Então eles desembarcavam na pista. Então quando a gente botia num quartel, né? eu lembro que uma vez um veio perguntar, disse, chefe, mas quando é que vamos à cidade do Cuito? Eu disse, estás na cidade do Cuito? É isto que eu venho defender! <laughs> the whole effort was conducted by uh, Fidel Castro by telephone from Havana. <laughs> he was a commanding officer. How you can do a thing like that, I wouldn't know. It, I mean, it's impossible. It gave us a problem from our side because we didn't know him. We didn't know his way of thinking, what type of personality he was. Because that's the thing you know, you've got to know in war. You've got to know the chap on the other side as well as you know yourself. You must know his strong points and his weaker points. That's how you're successful, otherwise you're not. The battle raged on, costing an estimated 25,000 lives. All sides claimed victory, without managing to stop the war. The combat at Cuito Cuanaval lasted six months and became Africa's largest battle since World War II.
stalemate on the battlefield was exactly what Chester Crocker needed to revive the peace talks. The only way out was a negotiated solution between governments, and that by definition excluded Jonas Savimbi. But before Crocker knew it, the Cubans came up with a surprise. Uh, well, I was in the National Security Council, and I got a call from Peggy Delaney, the daughter of uh, Rockefeller. And she said, I'm here in Cuba on some sort of a meeting of NGOs. And uh, Castro called me in and gave me a message. The basic message was this diplomacy is missing a critical ingredient. Yes. That critical ingredient is direct physical Cuban participation. If there were to be Cuban participation, this diplomacy would be more realistic and it would have better prospects for success. And the Americans' continued refusal to talk directly to the Cubans and to include them in the negotiating process was a, an obstacle. <laughs> it would be difficult to imagine a more direct hint. So this led to a major dilemma. Do you sit at the same table as the Cubans? Now, Chester Crocker, of course, wanted to, but he knew that sitting at the same table as the Cubans was politically very dangerous inside the United States. Uh, so he went to see George Shultz, who very courageously said, I authorize you to meet with the Cubans, but you must talk only about Angola and Namibia. If they bring up the U.S. trade embargo or anything like that, refuse to talk about it. The meeting took place at the presidential palace in Luanda. The Cubans had finally earned their place at center stage. We knew they were next door because we'd been briefed. And um, at a certain moment we said, okay, let's try. Let's see if we can make this work. Uh, invite your Cuban friends to join this process so they don't have to sit in the next room with earphones. They can actually be here at the table. <laughs> So in came the Cubans, and they were just as pleased and as proud as you could imagine. There were smiles. From Welcome back. And uh, that uh, was a audio documentary on uh, the role of Cuba in the armed phase of the African Revolution. And, of course, that's going to conclude uh, our program uh, for today, uh, the Pan-African Journal worldwide uh, radio broadcast, and of course, uh, our series, the African Liberation uh, Weekend Series. And of course, uh, we have uh, been broadcasting live uh, from our studios in downtown Detroit. We'd like to thank all of our listeners for tuning in. If you'd like to have access to this program, just go to our website at uh, the Pan-African Radio Network. That's at blogtalkradio.com forward slash Pan-African Journal. If you'd like to read the Pan-African Newswire, just go to our website at panafricannews.blogspot.com. We'll be closing out uh, with the music of uh, Horace Silver, and this was entitled Cape Verdean Blues. This is Abayomi Azikawe signing off, and have a beautiful week.
Thank you.